we give up praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one for whom we ask for help and the one that we ask for forgiveness. Whoever Allah chooses to guide, none can be led astray. And whoever Allah chooses to lead astray, none can guide him. And I testify that there's no deity worthy of worship except Allah. And that Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his last and final messenger. Dear brothers, and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, for those of you who don't know me at all, my name is Chavez. I have been attending this masjid since its inception since, subhanAllah, was it seven years ago? Um, and occasionally you might have seen me in the Sunday halatas, and occasionally on the Friday halatas. You know, I kind of established this reputation of asking the philosophical, theological, and yet every controversial questions to kind of push the conversation forward. So, you know, for whatever reason, Tarif decided I was worthy enough to give the khutbah today. So, inshallah, this will be a benefit for me and you both. <coughs> so, when I was trying to come up with the topic of what I'm going to cover for Juma today, I'll be brutally honest, I had a very difficult time. Uh, some of you might know, but today is actually the 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of not just one of the greatest heroes in the 20th century for us as Muslims, but for us as Americans, Al-Hajj, Malik Shabazz, aka Malcolm X, Rahimullah Ta'ala. And I can only speak for myself, but Malcolm has had a huge profound impact on my life, not just as an American, but as someone who wants to engage with Islam uh, more thoroughly. Um, so I was wondering, should I cover Malcolm X today for the khutbah? But ultimately, I decided against it. You know, Tarif did an excellent job last year uh, talking about the life of Al-Hajj Medic. But so I encourage you, all of you, to listen to that. It's available on the ICP website. But if you don't have the time for that, it's okay, inshallah. Just please, the very least you could do is make dua for him. Because without him and the rest of the heroes in the civil rights movement, most of us here who are people of color, or especially black Americans, we would not enjoy most of the rights that we have today. So please make dua for him. Five minutes, that's all, that's all I'm requesting. May Allah forgive and forgive Al-Hajj Malik and graduate from the highest levels of Jannah. So in the end, I decided to go, to go with a topic that's been regurgitated over and over again by imams, sheikhs, and online personalities. And I actually wrote the title. I mean, it's very basic. It's called Interacting, Engaging, and Empowering the Youth. MashaAllah. So, so the reason I went with this topic is oftentimes the speakers who usually speak on this topic are much older, maybe, you know, maybe 50s or 60s, but they're talking to a primarily a younger audience. And that's fine. You can give general advice, but there's often a disconnect because they might be referencing solutions or referencing problems that might not be applicable to the audience that they're trying to speak to. So what I'm gonna to try to do 
my, you know, my, at my very best is to give you a perspective from a youth, you know, a youth perspective. And, you know, inshallah, all of us here are young at heart, you know, especially the uncles and aunties, all of you are, all of you are young at heart, but for the purpose of the football, what I'm, what I'm defining as youth is going to be ages 40 and younger. Okay, 40 and younger. And you're going to see why as we progress through the khutbah. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide this up into three parts. So number one, we're going to focus on children. So ages 12 and younger, pre-puberty. Number two, we're going to focus on teenagers. And number three, we're going to focus on young adults. So let's just say 20 to 40 years old. And for each time period, we're going to look at one story of the Prophet how he interacted with children, teenagers, and young adults. And the reason I decided to go with stories is because generally speaking, people take in lessons much better when they hear stories. At least I can only speak for myself on that regard. Because you know how the saying goes, act, uh, actions speak louder than words. So rather than just me lecturing you on how to interact with kids, I'll just give you an example. And number two is to develop a better relationship and increase our love for the Prophet Because without the Prophet we don't have Islam. The Prophet is our anchor to Islam. You know, la ilaha illallah, yeah, that does define us as Muslims, but it also defines Christians and Jews. By, by having our attachment to the Prophet not only do we increase in our Iman, but it leads us to la ilaha illallah. So that's what I'm going to try to do. But um, full disclaimer, just for transparency, I'm not married. I'm not a parent. And I don't consider myself an elder. So don't think of this as me lecturing the elders. What I'm just doing is giving very general advice. And um, what, you know, I don't, I don't want this to come off as condescending. It's just, I'm just conveying what's been told to me through anecdotes or my personal experiences and so on and so forth. So inshallah, whatever good comes out of this is from Allah and only the mistakes are mine. So number one, where there's a first category, children. So one of the concerns that most Muslim parents and the large Muslim community has that they're constantly worried about is how do you raise children with a strong religious identity, especially in a non-Muslim country, right? How do you raise kids with strong Iman? And to be fair, that's not an unfounded concern. You know, Pew Research have done statistics on this, 70% of Christians 70% of Americans identify as Christians. Now, whether they go to Sunday every week, that's a different story. 23% identify as non-religious, and less than 1% identify as Muslims, right? Now, Pew said, generally speaking, Muslims transmit their religious identity to kids at a much higher rate than Christians do. I'm sure most of us know that anecdotally. However, Pew also said that approximately 20%, 20%, one in five, kids who are who are raised Muslim as kids, when they become adults, they don't identify as Muslim anymore. So then the question is why? In order to answer that question, we have to look at the factors and the role models that children look to that form their religious identity. And there's multiple factors. You know, you have mass media, right? So what your children watch on the internet and TV, that can influence how they view religion. You have their friend groups, right? Like who your kids are friends with, that also determines how they view religion. You have institutional and cultural factors. So whatever the prevailing culture is in the society, that can influence it. And whether, you know, whatever elementary school, middle school, high school, your kids go to. 
uh, higher education, right? So universities, and that's usually where a lot of doubts come in because that's when children, or I guess I should say youth, are more exposed to different ideologies, right? And all of these are important, but the one that we're going to focus on, that's the main topic of the chutbah, is uh, parental and elder socialization, right? How your children, you know, how your children interact with their parents and any of the elders within their immediate family or the or the overall community. And I think this is obvious for most of us. Children, generally speaking, the central tenet of their spiritual modeling is observational learning. Meaning what? Your children form their religion based on what they see you do, right? So if you tell your, your kids don't do what you tell them, they do what they see you do. So if you tell your kids to pray and they see you pray, generally speaking, they will pray when they get older. If you tell your children to be charitable and they see you being charitable, generally speaking, they will be charitable. Now, conversely, the opposite is, is true. If you tell your children to pray and you don't pray, you think they're gonna pray? If you tell your children to be charitable, but you're stingy with your money, do you think they're gonna be charitable when they grow older? Obviously not, right? And I was looking at a study the other day that kind of summarizes this point I'm trying to make. Um, it was a sociologist, uh, Vern L. Bingston, and he studied 350 families over a span of 35 years. And one of the conclusions he made, and I'm just gonna read it verbatim, uh, if parents are not themselves involved in religious activities, if their actions are not consistent with what they preach, children are rarely motivated to follow in their parents' religious footsteps. So basically what he's saying is that you as parents and elders generally, you build the foundation of what your kids' faith will be in the future. And I know that sounds like a lot of pressure, but it really is important because that is the developmental age of children. That is how they form their worldview and eventually their religious worldview. So without delaying further, I want to give you an example of how the Prophet built up the faith of children, how his example inspired great people. Anas bin Malik was seven years old when the Prophet came to Medina during the Hijrah. And uh, when the Prophet arrived, Anas's mother wanted Anas to go work for the Prophet, kind of like as a servant or as, a, as an assistant, I guess you could say. And by the way, this shows the importance of having good role models. His mother sent him to work for the Prophet because he needed that religious example. So he sent him, so she sent Anas to work for the Prophet. And Anas himself narrates that I worked for the Prophet 10 years, 10 years, and never once did he hit me. Never once did he say, oof, when he was annoyed with me. Like, you know, in our cultures, we say, oh, when we're annoyed. Never once did he say, oof, when he was annoyed with me. Never once that when I did something wrong, did he say, why did you do that? Never once did, if I didn't do something, he didn't say, why didn't you do that? But we're not going to focus on Anas per se. We're going to focus on we're going to focus on his little brother. So Anas had a little brother, and the Prophet used to give him a nickname. This nickname was called Abu Umer. Now, during now, Abu Umer is probably five years old when this incident happens. Anas is probably seven. Oh, you know, Abu Umer is not the father of anybody, but it's just a playful nickname that the Prophet is giving him. He's calling him Abu Umer. And Abu Umer had this little bird. In Arabic, this bird is called Anugher, right? Like a little bird. If you know your birds, you could say it's like a canary or like a finch. So Abu Umer had this bird, had this nugair as a pet. And, you know, he would play with it. He would keep it in the house. And, you know, what, what children do with pets? So one day the Prophet just happens to walk by 
Anas's house, and he, he notices Abu Umair just sitting alone, sad and depressed. So he goes up to Anas and he said, Ya Anas, what's, what's wrong with your little brother? Why is he all depressed? And Anas told him, Ya Rasulullah, his bird died. You know, the, the little Nuhair died. <clears throat> and so the Prophet listened, without even thinking, he goes up to Abu Umair and he says this very beautiful phrase. He said, Ya Abu Umair, ma fa'la Nuhair. Oh, Abu Umair, what happened to your little bird? You know, what did the little bird do? And the hadith stops there, but the commentators basically say that uh, Abu Umair explained, you know, Ya Rasulullah, you know, my bird died. And the Prophet just let him cry. He let him cry, he consoled him, and then he played with him to kind of cheer him up. Now, Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani, rahimullah, he says that you can drive over a hundred different meanings from this one hadith. And obviously, we do not have the time to go over a hundred meanings, but inshallah, we'll go over a couple of them. Uh, number one, the Prophet wasn't afraid to introduce children to the concept of death. He did not say, oh, Abu Umair, the bird's not dead, it's sleeping. You know, then take the bird and get a new one. He said, look, he woke up. Right? The Prophet didn't do that. He wasn't afraid to have difficult conversations with kids. Number two, the Prophet was concerned about the state of children. How often do we walk into a room and notice the states of other people, let alone children? And by the way, this is with a little boy. Usually we don't validate the feelings of little boys. Usually if it's a little girl, everybody in the, in the room will run and try to cheer up the little girl. But if it's a little boy, if the little boy falls down and he starts bleeding, he'll be like, stop it. You don't be a man. You don't get up. Right, well, the Prophet wasn't like that. He cared for the states of all people. But number three, and this is the one I really want you to focus on, is that the Prophet was a very wise man. He was a very intelligent man. And he thought to himself, look, I represent religion to this boy. I can preach all I want about Islam being kindness, Islam being compassion, Islam being mercy. But if I'm not there to walk him through this experience, then all I'm doing is talking the talk. And the Prophet was not like that. He walked the walk. And that's why he was an example for everybody. And just think of it from Abu Umair and Anas's perspective. Do you think they ever would have forgotten that day? In fact, Anas himself is the one who narrates this hadith. And he grew up to be one of the great teachers of the Sahaba and major narrator of hadith. And he must have, and we can only assume, but he must have thought to himself, you know what? The fact that the Prophet came up to us, and I never asked him. I didn't even say, Ya Rasulullah, my little brother's depressed, go cheer him up. He just happened to walk by, and he noticed that my brother was sad. And to me, that indicated good character. To me, that indicated a purity of heart. To me, it showed that the Prophet isn't just all talk. When he talks about Islam being mercy, he lives it and he shows it. And because the Prophet was beautiful, therefore Islam was beautiful. And that's how the Prophet produced the best of generations. So number two, so I'm sorry we have to go quickly, but because of time, I have to go through these, uh, you know, a really, relatively fast pace. Uh, the second category, all right, pu uh, teenagers, basically post-puberty. Now, one of the biggest psychological calamities that has ever faced us as a modern society is the invention of this term, adolescence you know it's this middle age where like you're a child then you're this middle thing called adolescence and then you're adult realize that in human history there is no thing called adolescence you know in most of human history by the time you turn into a teenager you basically become a man or a woman and you had to you know you would go to war you get married and you'd have you basically be uh, prosecuted by the full extent of the law 
And even in our own Sharia, by the way, you are responsible for your own spiritual worship by the time you reach intellectual maturity. You know, in Arabic, this is called taqlib or muqallaf, right? <clears throat> Uh, and in fact, many sociologists actually criticize this term of adolescence. Um, they basically, the basic gist of it that they say is that, look, when you have a person who, who has the hormones in the mind that's screaming at them, that biologically they're ready to be an adult, and you're infantilizing them, what happens is that that cognitive dissonance, it, dissonance, it causes them to lash out, and they act in an extremely immature manner. Right now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that a 15 year old is equivalent to a mind of a 45 year old. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's my humble opinion that if we didn't baby our children, you know, teenagers so much, which I do feel like we do. And many of you are immigrants. You, you both, you know that when you are a 15 year old or your parents are 15 year olds, they're not like a 15 year old today. You know, intellectually wise, maturity wise, they're very different. And so my personal opinion is if we gave teenagers more responsibility, if we invest, you know, invested in them, put trust in them, they would be forced to act mature and they wouldn't act so foolhardy as they do today, unfortunately, you know, drugs, hypersexualization, and so much more. And look, I'm not saying when I say giving more responsibility, I'm not saying you have to make them into full adults, but I'm saying you give them, you know, Smaller tasks. So, like, say you have a 15-year-old and you have to go out somewhere. You say, "Okay, can you go watch the kids, the younger kids, for like a couple hours?" 15-year-old is more than capable of staying at home and watching the younger kids for a couple of hours. And you're putting a sense of trust and responsibility in them. So you're forcing, you're kind of forcing them in a position of maturity. So now that brings us to the second story. During the during the last few weeks of the Prophet's son's life, when his illness really took hold. One of the last things that the Prophet ordered was to order an expedition up north because realize the Prophet has already conquered Arabia and uh, he has to worry about competing powers coming in and try to take over basically and kick him out. So one of these powers that he had to worry about was the Byzantine Empire, right? the East Roman Empire. And so the Prophet wanted to send an expedition up north to basically tell them, you know, we mean business, you know, don't mess with us. Right, and the Prophet you know, organized a large army, and Abu Bakr and Umar are in this army, Radulana. And so uh, the question became, who should be in command of this army? So the Prophet ended up choosing a particular Sahabi. His name is Usama ibn Zayd. Usama ibn Zayd. Usama, the son of Zayd ibn Haritha. And Zayd ibn Haritha is the adopted son of the Prophet Now. Many of the Sahaba were not, I don't want to say they weren't happy, but they grumbled about this decision. Um, and you can understand why. Because at the time that Sayyidina Zayd was appointed, Sayyidina Zayd was only 17 years old, and he had practically no experience in commanding a battle. Commanding a battle. So understandably, they were frustrated. Like, Ya Rasulullah, we're facing the Byzantine Empire. This is a major world superpower. And, you know, this is a very big deal. And why are we picking a 17-year-old boy who practically has no experience whatsoever in commanding battles? You know, why are we doing this? So the Prophet he's on his deathbed right now. The Sahaba don't know it's his deathbed, but he's on, but he on his deathbed. So he poured water on his face, he got up, 
and he made a sermon in public. This is one of the last things he did in public. And the Prophet said, if you grumble and complain about Usama, then you grumble and complain about his father. His father, his father Zaid, his father was one of the most beloved people to me. And his son, Usama, is one of the most beloved people to me. This is probably the third or second last time that they that the Sahaba ever see the Prophet in public, defending the honor of Usama ibn Zaid. Now before the now before Usama could actually start the expedition, you know, the Prophet's illness eventually got worse, and then the Prophet returned to his Lord. And so when the Prophet died, uh, there was discussion amongst the, the Sahaba, should we cancel the mission? You know, should we just forget about this? Because now we have all these false prophets coming up. They want to attack us from within Medina. We have to worry about everybody else. Maybe now's not a good time to go after the Byzantine Empire. And so when Sayyidina Abu Bakr was appointed as the Khalifa, Sayyidina Abu Bakr said, how can I cancel a mission that the Prophet didn't cancel? And Osama is still going to be in charge of this mission. By the way, and you know, Osama is probably still like 17, 18 years old. And, and they have to worry now about internal threats. They didn't have to worry that before when the Prophet made this mission. So to cut a long story short, uh, eventually Zaid's mission was successful. He was able to, to defeat the Byzantines in that battle. And subhanAllah, brothers and sisters, because of Zaid ibn Haritha's mission, that opened the door for the conquest of, and I'm going to list the countries here, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, and Philistine. So for all the Muslims who come from these countries, they owe their Islam to a 17-year-old boy that the Prophet appointed. May Allah protect the people of Syria and Philistine. And so when you hear this mantra that's heard in Masajid about we need to empower the youth, we need to engage the youth, what does that mean? I would argue that in order to empower, you need to take risks in people. You need to take investment in people. It was a huge risk for the Prophet to appoint a 17-year-old who had no experience to fight the Byzantine. There were plenty of other people more capable than Zayd. You had Sayyidina Ali, you had Sayyidina Khalid Muleed, you had Sayyidina Abu Ubaidah Amr al-Jarah. You had plenty of battle-hardened warriors to fight the Byzantines. But the Prophet said, the, the Prophet was a revolutionary force. He was a counterculture force. He didn't believe in the status quo. He didn't believe, let the old men just decide and, and uh, govern the affairs of the ummah. No, our future generation are the ones that carry Islam into the future. And the Prophet elevated people. He inspired people. He believed in people. He believed in them when they didn't believe in themselves. And he allowed them to grow in their potential, even when they didn't realize it. And that's how he produced people like same as Osama bin Zayd, and you know, accomplish all that he accomplished. The last one, the last category, this might be a little controversial, but inshallah, you know, it is what it is. Um, older youth, so ages 20 and 40. Now, one of the most uncomfortable things for parents to recognize and to the, the frustration of many youth is my dear parents and my dear elders, you need to recognize that once your youth reach a certain level of intellectual maturity, you need to understand that there's somebody that were uh, an individual worthy of an opinion. You need to understand that there's someone that you need to show them respect. Respect. That's not something you usually hear in khutbahs. Usually it's the other way around. 
Usually it's the respect of children to parents. I'm not, and I'm not even going to debate that, right? That's a, that is non-negotiable, but what, but I'm, you know, the etiquette of children to their parents is the, the evidence is pathetic. It's clear. There's no debate, but there is a certain etiquette that you parents need to show with their children, because if you don't show them that kind of respect, if you're not empathetic with them, then how do you expect to have a loving relationship with them? You know, if you just act as a tyrannical ruler, whatever I say goes, you know, my way or the highway, right? That might work when the kid is four or five years old. And I'm not saying you negotiate with a five-year-old, but if you do that with someone who's intellectually ready to be an adult and you keep telling them and ordering them like a prison warden, do you want them to have that feelings of resentment for the rest of their life? And then when they leave event, the nest eventually, which they will leave eventually, do you want them to have such bitter feelings towards you and because of Islam, because of your example? Uh, because of time, I have to rush to, this, to the last story right now. Um, so Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, despite his rank and his nobility amongst the Prophet, amongst the Prophet <laughs> and the Sahaba, he used to grow up very poor. In fact, he himself narrates that he used to do all these odd jobs and basically act as like a contractor of sorts. <clears throat> and he, you know, building things, carrying things, whatever the prophet says, whatever people ask him to do. <laughs> so one day after the after Sayyidina Ali married Lady Fatima al-Zahra, uh, they had moved into their new house. And their house was right across from the Prophet So being a neighbor of the Prophet that comes with responsibility and comes with commitment, right? So the Prophet used to wake them up for tahajjud, right, for qiyam. And so one day the Prophet came to their house and he, and he knocked on the door. And what happened? Nobody answered. So eventually the Prophet left, did tahajjud on his own. The next day he goes up to Ali and he said, he saw someone goes up to Ali and said, Ya Ali, why didn't you wake up for tahajjud? And Sayyidina Ali, he gives a beautiful response. He says, Ya Rasulullah, our souls, our arwa are in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He takes them and he decides when to give them back. Meaning what? It's not my fault I'm sleeping. <laughs> right? It's not my fault Allah took my soul when it revolves. Right? And in response to this, the Prophet some tapped his thighs. Like, you know when you're annoyed, you say, oh my God, I can't believe this. Right? And the Prophet tapped his thighs and he quoted Surah Al-Kahf and he said, what well, Human beings are always argumentative. Like, I'm trying to wake him up for Tahajjud, and then what does he tell me? Allah's original causes me to sleep. <laughs> right? What does this show? I mean, the, the Prophet ﷺ was understanding. He was empathetic. You know, they're newlyweds. They're young. Sayyidina Ali has to work all day and night. Obviously, it's hard for him right now. He's not established. He can't work. He can't pray, wake up in the middle of the night and then work the next day. It's hard. And if the Prophet ﷺ wanted to, he could have ordered it. He could have been that tyrannical ruler and said, you have to do it. And by the way, look at the relationship between Sayyidina Ali and Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I mean, could you imagine if the Prophet Sallallahu came to your house, he tried to wake you up for tahajjud and you didn't wake up? I mean, I can't speak, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but the shame and embarrassment that I would feel, it, it can't even get into words. So, so the Prophet Sallallahu was understanding. He said, you know what? They're newlyweds, they're young. I don't want to be hard on them. I'm, I'm not here to make Islam difficult. But conversely, the Prophet didn't say, don't pray to Hajjud. Oh, you're working? Don't pray to Hajjud. No, he wants them to have that closer relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But 
he was, you know, cut back. So if your kid comes to, if you go up to your son or daughter and you say, you know, Beta, let's go pray Tahajjud together, let's go to Lafalata, and they said, you know, Mama, Baba, I can, you know, I have a presentation or I have work tomorrow. Okay, compromise. Maybe you don't make them do Tahajjud or maybe you don't make them go to Lafalata. Maybe let's just sit together and let's just do five minutes and let's just do Salawat on the Prophet. You know, that in and of itself, one, it's better than doing nothing. And two, the reward that you'll get from that is infinitely better than anything that you could have asked for. So inshallah, in the second khutbah, we're going to tie this all up together um, with the main theme that um, links these stories and the strategies the Prophet used with youth. <laughs> Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, because I'm not a parent, I can only give you general, very, very general advice. And the only thing I can say is that we need to revive the spirit of mercy in our hearts and the way we interact with elders and as mentors in the way of the Prophet and in the way that Allah treats his creation. Allah describes the Prophet as you know, we didn't send you except to be a mercy to all worlds. You know, uh, Abdullah bin Amr al reported the Prophet said, Right? The merciful one, Ar-Rahimun, sends mercy to those who show mercy. If you show mercy to those on earth, the one in the heavens will show mercy to you. But then that begs the question, what is mercy? I would argue that there's two parts to that question. Number one, what is mercy and what's required of mercy, right? Now, what is mercy is what we think of as mercy, kindness, and the other part is discipline. Like, you know, when your kid comes up to you and says, Mama, you know, I want ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You would stop him and say, no, you can't have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe just after dinner. And if you're good, maybe you can have a little more later. Right? But that's discipline because even though the child wants the ice cream, you're taking it away from him to prevent him from harm. That is also mercy. Now, but what is required of mercy? I would argue that also has two parts. Number one, you need empathy. You need conversation. If you're not, you can't have mercy to someone that you don't understand where you're coming from. And for elders, that's especially important because you have lived through most of the experiences that your children have lived through. So anything that burdens on you to be merciful towards them, right? Although children, you just do have to be merciful to your parents. Please don't get that twisted. And then number two, the expression of mercy. What do I mean by that? A man once came to the Prophet and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I have 10 children. And wallahi, I never kiss any of them. Right? <laughs> right? And then the Prophet responded, how am I supposed to help you if Allah has removed mercy in your heart? To show mercy, to be merciful, you have to show mercy. If you love someone, you show it. You shouldn't have your children or your youth second-guessing themselves. Does mama and baba really love me? Do the elders really care about me? You know, I don't know what it is about our cultures, and the youth here know exactly what I'm talking about, is that in our cultures, we have equated parenting to emotional distance. We have equated parenting to being strict and to being harsh. You know, if you come up and say, Mama, I got an A on the math test. Why was it an A plus? You know, uh, you know, uh, Baba, I love you. Baba will say thank you. 
right? <laughs> right? And and look, uh, you you know, to the younger people, I understand when you when you get frustrated with your parents. You know, it, it can be you know, I'm not here to judge you. I feel you. Believe me, I feel you. I hear the stories and I completely understand. But just realize that, and you know, you will realize this is that nobody in the world will care more for you than your parents. Your parents and your elders will take all the pain in the world just to save you from that little bit of pain. And you, like a needle prick worth of pain. And so, um, and so, uh, oh, well, wow. <laughs> uh, so, inshallah, all the parents here will be rewarded for their intention of showing love. Because I know, inshallah, it's coming from a place of love. But my dear parents and elders, I just need you to understand that how you express your love is also important. You know, don't our children and our youth deserve to hear you say, I love you? You know, don't they deserve to hear you say, I'm proud of you? You know, they shouldn't have to second guess themselves and constantly wonder if mom and baba actually care about me or if my community actually cares about me. You know, we, we should believe in them and we should let them grow to their potential as we know that they are. We know that they're stars. So then why don't we just let them know, you know? And that was the way of our Prophet Sallallahu You know, our Prophet Sallallahu produced the best of generation, not by harshness, not by strictness, but by treating his youth with respect, by giving them a voice, and by making them feel wanted when they didn't feel wanted. And that's how he produced the best generation. So with that being said, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless our parents and our youth. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to uh, relieve the burden of our youth, may relieve their may relieve their stresses, may make things easy for them, and may, may make them the shining lights that we know them that they are. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless our elders for all the work that they have done in our communities. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless the Prophet and his family and his companions. May Allah allow us to see the month of Ramadan. May Allah bless Al-Hajj Barak al-Shabazz. May he forgive him for his sin. May he grant him nobility on the day of judgment. And may he grant him the highest levels of Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect the people of Palestine, Syria, Kashmir, the Rohingya in Myanmar, the Uyghurs in East Turkestan, and all oppressed people in the world. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from hearts that are not humble, tongues that are not wise, and eyes that have forgotten how to cry. Rabbana la tuzda kulubana ba'ta is hadaytana wa abdana minadunka rahma innaka antar wahab ibadallah inna allaha ya'maru bil adli wal ihsan wa aitayi dhul kurba wa yanhaan al-fahisha wa munkari wa baghi yadhuna alukum dadakurun waqim as-salam. Straighten your lines, turn your hearts to Allah. Allahu Akbar.
Just a couple of announcements. Uh, Sunday and Friday, the clips are canceled today. Uh, Dr. Barak and Tariq are traveling. Um, please pray for Dr. Hervez Hassan. Who is suffering from high blood pressure, uh, hypertension, and he's in the hospital. Uh, um, just a major announcement. Uh, uh, so the ICCP barn, there's the ICCP barn uh, barn project matching grant program. 
So a generous member has pledged a, a dollar for dollar grant match for donations by ICCP members from February 20th to April 20th, basically before Ramadan. You know, Mela allows to see Ramadan. Um, all donations will be matched up to $50,000. So please donate to the limit. Um, all donations are tax exempt. Um, and I do encourage you to be charitable. You know, I was talking a lot about role models and you know, alhamdulillah, we're very lucky to have a masjid that's as opening as this one. I'm telling you right now, most, a lot of masjid are not like this. So you're very, you should count yourself lucky that you have someplace open to, you know, have these lovely conversations and have someone as, you know, jahal as me give the khutbah here. So, you know, please donate as much as you can. You know, it's for a good cause and it's for our youth. So I